Last week, we started exploring uh, Luke chapter 13. Uh, The chapter begins with people coming to Jesus to ask him questions about suffering. Uh, These people ask him about two specific groups of different people. Uh, The first group had suffered at the hands of Pontius Pilate. The same Pilate who sentenced Jesus to death had mixed the blood of Galileans with the blood of sacrifices. Now, the second group suffered not at the hands of a ruthless dictator, but because of an unfortunate accident. A tower fell and had killed them. Now, these are just two of the many questions that people ask about suffering. Why do evil people have power and do bad things? And why do terrible accidents happen? Maybe we have found ourselves asking things like, why did my uncle pass away so early? Or why is my boss such a jerk? Or why did I get COVID again for the second or even the third time? Turn on the news and you're going to see suffering in many different forms. You're going to see fires popping up in apartment buildings that are just wreaking havoc on communities. You're going to see politicians fighting about ridiculous things and not solving anything. And you might even see tornadoes blasting through the Midwest and destroying people's lives. The list of things that we see as suffering goes on and on. Our passage this morning continues on that melody of suffering, but it does not remain there. Instead, the passage moves from suffering to glory, and the title of the sermon this morning is From Suffering to Glory. In verse 10, Jesus does not address these big flashy headlines in local newspapers or TV stations about towers crushing people or Pilate's last murderous rage. Rather, Jesus gives us an object lesson from an unlikely source, from a woman within his own audience. Now, how would you like a pastor to call you to the stage to be an example or an object lesson of suffering? Now, I need a really good example of somebody who's miserable. Let me see who's out there. Oh, would you come up to the stage so we can all look at your miserable life? Well, I suspect that some of us might enjoy being the, uh, the spectacle on stage, but for the rest of us, I think we would find that quite humiliating. Nevertheless, Jesus notices an example in the crowd, one who would have been unnoticed to every other rabbi, because this example was a woman. Now, I find it interesting that the people at the beginning of Luke 13 asked Jesus about those who were suffering in other parts of the world, in Galilee and in Salome. But Jesus notices one suffering right in front of him. Sometimes we like to try to help those who are suffering in other communities, other counties, other states, or even other countries or other continents. But Jesus reminds us that we don't need to look that far to find people who are suffering. Jesus identifies this woman in his congregation who is bent over. Now, this seems like a weird ailment, doesn't it? After all, all of us bend over all the time. I mean, this morning I bent over to tie my shoes and I bent over to pick up my bag and probably bent over another four or five times without even realizing it. But we usually stand back up after we bent over. This lady was bent over for 18 years. Now, some people argue that this number 18 has some symbolic significance or there's some numerological point behind the number 18. Well, I don't know if there is or not. I just simply think that it means she was bent over For a long time. If you bend over to tie your shoes, I'm guessing it would take you about 30 seconds and then you could stand back up. 
Uh, maybe if you throw your back out at the gym or if you're doing some yard work and pull a muscle, maybe you are bent over for about a week. Maybe you have some very serious injury and you have to have back surgery. Maybe you're out of commission for six months, nine months, or possibly even a year. But the lady in our passage this morning, she was bent over for 18 years. To me, that is unfathomable, 18 years being bent over. Now, there is a little bit of ambiguity in the text. It could mean that this woman was just slightly bent over and couldn't stand up all of the way. But it could mean that this woman was bent all the way over, maybe at a right angle, making a, this you know, perfect right angle point. Now, this might seem unusual. We don't see people like this every day in our lives. Well, in Hong Kong, it is not uncommon to see some elderly men or women who are bent over much at a right angle. Maybe they've lived a a long life of hard manual labor. They didn't have comfortable beds uh, to sleep on. They didn't wear orthopedic shoes, and they didn't even have proper nutrition. I was looking up online uh, pictures uh, of these people, and I was debating whether I should uh, put one into a PowerPoint, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I, I commend you to, to, to look this up uh, uh, whenever you go home. Uh, but I just couldn't imagine putting a picture of one of these men or women up if that was my mother or if that was my, my sibling or one of my friends or possibly even my spouse. And as I was looking up these pictures, I saw a news article from The Guardian where it referred to these uh, people or these women in particular as cardboard grannies. Uh, They were called cardboard grannies because they would be seen going around the city with a cart trying to collect cardboard boxes. And they would take these cardboard boxes and turn them in uh, for recycling money and maybe get four or five dollars a day. Well, after pushing these carts, sometimes they would be dragging them with a harness uh, behind them or they would be pushing them. They would be bent over at a right angle. Uh, As a foreigner living in Hong Kong, I found this situation quite helpless. In in one day, I found one of these cardboard grannies uh, digging through a trash can uh, right outside of my nice apartment. Uh, I offered this lady some money, and she quite thankfully received it. But then she just went right back to digging in the trash can for cans and more cardboard boxes. My small amount wouldn't be able to really change her situation. Even if I had given her thousands of dollars, she would probably still be digging through more trash cans. Even in America, we see the physical ailment of being bent over. It it occurs from time to time. I I had an elderly neighbor once uh, who was bent over at the waist and couldn't do some of the daily uh, common things that you and I do every day and, and take for granted. Uh, my, my neighbor had to stop driving his Mustang, a car that he cherished. He could no longer bend his back enough to see over the steering wheel. And every once in a while, he would ask me to come into his house because he was not able to lift his back and adjust the thermostat and see the numbers. Now, I'm pretty sure that the ancient world did not have thermostats, and I don't think they had Mustang cars. But this suffering woman in our passage would have suffered in many similar would have suffered many similar inconveniences in her life. And she would have also suffered from social stigmas as well. I referred to her earlier as somebody that would have been unnoticed because she was a woman in a patriarchal society. But at the same time, it would have been hard not to notice somebody who was bent over at a right angle. 
If you remember earlier in Luke 13, when these people are asking Jesus about these situations of suffering, they connect their suffering to sin. They think that these people were mixed with the sacrificial blood or that this tower fell on them because they were sinners. So when people would have seen this woman who had been suffering for 18 years, they would have thought she was a sinner. We get a glimpse of this in John chapter 9. There's the man who has been born blind. And when the disciples of Jesus see this man who's been born blind, they come and they ask him, they say, who sinned? Did this person sin or did this person's parents sin? There's only two possible explanations in the ancient world for why somebody is suffering and they both deal with sin. So this woman would have been associated with sin whether she sinned or not. Imagine the shame that she would have endured for nearly two decades. Imagine the shame her parents would have gone through. Maybe people thought that her parents had sinned in some way. Or if this woman was married, imagine the shame that her husband must have felt. Maybe they thought that the husband had sinned in some way. Or even her siblings and her children, they all would have bore the shame that this woman was carrying. And imagine the mocking that this woman would have heard as she went to the market and heard all the other women whispering behind her back. Imagine all the pain that came from the unwanted sympathy of friends who were trying to comfort, but only making the wounds go deeper. Now, I've worked with kids for nearly a decade, and I can tell you that kids can be angelic, but kids can also be non-angelic. And they can go back and forth very easily. Some of the sweetest ones will surprise you at how quickly they can turn. So I imagine this woman walking down the street after she's been in the market and has heard all of these whisperings, after she's been to her friend's house and received this unwanted sympathy. I can only imagine what she would hear the kids whispering and saying in the streets. And on top of all of this, some of her favorite things she wouldn't even be able to enjoy. Walking through the park and seeing the spring flowers or taking a stroll in the autumn and seeing the leaves. Imagining hearing everybody comment about how beautiful the sunset is, but you can't lift your head high enough to see it. Decades of her life had been lost. And in our text this morning, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, and he noticed this woman, and he calls her up to the front. I can only imagine what she would have been thinking. Oh, oh no, why is he calling me over? Is this another lesson about sin? Is he going to shame my family? What is my husband going to say when I get back home? Well, maybe as she was walking up through the crowd to find her way to Jesus, she could hear some of the whispers of those women from the marketplace. Or maybe she could hear other women telling her kids to stop giggling and calling her names. Have you ever felt uncomfortable? Maybe a teacher calls on you in class and you're not prepared to give an answer and you feel this tightness in your chest thinking, what am I going to say? Well, I think this lady would have felt the same type of thing. Oh no, another public shaming. I hope I can just get through it. Well, she braces herself for the blows that are about to come, but then she's surprised. Jesus doesn't call her to himself to make fun of her, to mock her, or to giggle at her. He doesn't even call her over to give her that sympathy, which only makes the pain worse. In fact, he touches her. He lays his hands upon her. Yes, he declares her free from her disability. The same voice that spoke all things into existence has spoken her freedom into existence. But he also lays his hands upon her. He restores her dignity to her. In this culture, people were very cautious about who they touched and about what they touched. You didn't want to touch anything that was unclean or you would be ceremonially unclean. 
And you certainly didn't want to touch anything that was diseased. You didn't want to get that disease. So if you saw somebody who was bent over at a right angle, you didn't know what it came from. But would you want to be bent over at a right angle? Probably not. So you're not likely to touch that type of person. But Jesus isn't scared to identify with the outcasts, with the sinners, with the unclean, or with the weak. He calls them his friends. I recently listened to an audiobook written by Mother Teresa. Uh, it was a great book, but I listened to it when I was at the gym, and it wasn't the most motivational book for pumping iron, but it was very inspirational spiritually. Uh, Mother Teresa recounts how she was walking down the streets of Calcutta, and she saw a man in the gutter who lied dying. She described him as a man who was literally being eaten alive by worms. Now, I don't know about you, but during COVID, there's been times where I have been hesitant to shake somebody's hands because I don't want germs. And usually I'm somebody who is squeamish whenever I see blood and other bodily fluids. So I can't imagine reaching down and touching somebody who is being eaten alive by worms. But that's exactly what Mother Teresa did. Her and uh, her associates uh, took this man into their home. And for the next two hours, Mother Teresa cleaned this man up, and this man profusely thanked Mother Teresa. Uh, After those two hours of cleaning, this man passed away and went into eternity. Now, why would Mother Teresa touch a gross, dying man moments before his death? Well, Mother Teresa is giving this man his dignity back. Mother Teresa was living like Christ. She was healing the sick with the little power that she had. Well, Jesus has far more power than Mother Teresa, or anyone else for that matter. And he simply doesn't comfort a dying woman. He heals her. He calls her a daughter of Abraham, a descendant of their greatest ancestor. This woman is no longer the black sheep of society. She's no longer the black sheep of Israel, and she's no longer the black, black sheep of the family. She is a valued child of God. She's a valued child of Abraham. In Roman society, men were valued more than women. But because of passages like this, in the early church, women were placed on equal footing with men, and even seen as the leaders of men at certain points. In the second century in modern-day Lyon, France, there was a group of martyrs that were being led to their execution. Uh, In most of these situations, some of the martyrs would recant. They would deny Christ, and they would go away free. Uh, Ironically, the early church would call this their spiritual abortion. They were failed to be born spiritually through martyrdom, and they were aborted. They, They fell away. But in this particular instance, uh, the majority of the martyrs uh, go their way to their, to their death. Some did fall away, but many did not. But there was one that was chosen to endure the hardest of all tortures. You see, some of the martyrs died very quickly, maybe one blow from a weapon or from an animal, and they passed on to the next life. But there was one person who endured terrible treatment. She was kicked around by wild bulls and dragged in a net, She had her limbs gnawed on by lions, and she was tied to a stake. She survived longer than anyone, and she gave inspiration to everyone who saw her, and she continues giving inspiration today. It was a little slave girl who was being martyred by these great strong men and women. This little slave girl who became known as Saint Blandina 
was the one who endured the hardest treatment. If you look up pictures of St. Blandina, you'll see different artworks which depict her in a variety of ways. Some pictures of art depict her in a very literal sense. You'll see her being knocked around by bulls or lions biting her appendages. And you'll realize why I didn't put any of those pictures up. I'm squeamish when I see blood. But there's other pictures that see it in a more spiritual sense. They'll see Blandina not in a, a situation of pain, but in a situation of power, where she is standing with lion around her feet. It's almost as if the artist and the Christian community recognized her as the New Testament version of Daniel. She was the one that was sent as a testimony to calm the mouths of lions. But my favorite picture of Blandina is her with the lions peacefully at her feet and her arms extended out like this. The artist in the early church recognizes that Blandina is a picture of Christ. She is the leader of the great martyrs of Leon. Now the woman in our passage this morning is also a leader. She erupts into spontaneous praise whenever she's touched by Jesus. She sees the wonders of Christ's miracles and she cannot help but sing. She leads others into a time of praise and rejoicing as well. But like most good times, this one is cut short by the clergy. The ruler of the synagogue scolds Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. Perhaps you, I, or anyone else who likes a good party would have thrown rotten tomatoes at such a minister. But of course, Jesus realizes that there is a greater battle taking place. As St. Paul says in Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Other human beings are not our enemies. Politicians are not our enemies. And even our family members who champion politicians, they are not our enemies. But the evil one, the devil, Satan, he is the ultimate enemy. Now, earlier in Luke chapter 13, Jesus calls people to repent. And throughout the Bible, and especially the New Testament, we are commanded to have faith in Jesus. Now, this passage does not directly command us to have faith. Rather, I believe it inspires us to have faith. Because Jesus is victorious over Satan, over the devil, and over the evil one. This woman is not disabled because of her sin, because of her parents' sin, or even because of her bad luck. She is suffering because of the evil one, the devil, the tempter who has led our original parents, Adam and Eve, astray, and who has been wreaking havoc on God's creation ever since. Now, whenever you hear Satan or the devil, what comes to your mind? Do you picture that silly little mythical figure from all the cartoons with the long red tail and pointy horns and a pitchfork? Or do you picture that serpent that is seen throughout Scripture? Or do you see a hockey team? I am not sure what you would see, but there's many different things that we see in our society when we think of the devil. C.S. Lewis famously said that people are either too focused on things like the devil, demons, and the spiritual world, or they're focused too little on things like the devil, demons, and the spiritual world. In my assessment, the American and Western cultures focus too little on the devil. Uh, this doesn't mean that we should start panicking or trying to find the devil behind every nook and cranny, but I think there is a lot we can learn from other parts of the world. African, Asian, and South American countries probably lie on the opposite end of the spectrum and think about the spiritual world too much, if such a thing is possible. 
Uh, in Thailand, I had many conversations with professors who had PhDs from North America and Europe in things like chemistry and physics, and all of them believed in demons and spirits. I lived on a college campus in Thailand uh, that had a nice uh, lake with a jogging track around it. And if you went there in the evening time, before sunset, you would see hundreds of people getting their exercise in around this track. If you went after sunset, you would probably just see me getting my exercise in because everybody else was scared of the ghosts that would come out uh, at this lake time after the sun went down. Now, it might seem silly, and to me it was a little bit silly, but spiritual warfare was and is a very real element of the Christian life. It's not uncommon for me to receive emails from missionary friends that are still in Thailand asking me to pray for young converts as they go through spiritual wars right after their conversion. Maybe they'll have one, two, or even three weeks of intense spiritual battles at night as they've lived with demons and idols in their houses, and as that process of transitioning to a life with Christ can be very real and explicit. It often uh, gives visiting missionaries to Thailand and other eastern countries uh, a bit of a scare, but it is also encouraging to see the power of Christ in the face of such demonic powers. The early church addressed Satan, and specifically Christ's defeat of Satan, very frequently. Of course, the early church believed that Jesus forgave people's sins, but one's personal forgiveness was not the primary focus of Christ's work on the cross in the early church. What was their focus? Christ's victory over Satan and their freedom from Satan's bondage. That was the primary focus that we see in some of the first century churches. Now, this freedom that Christ brought, it was not a freedom to do whatever we please. No, it was a freedom to become like Christ, to live a holy life, and to join in his kingdom. Throughout Luke's gospel and throughout Christ's life on earth, everyone is hopefully anticipating the kingdom of God, except they are anticipating a quick arrival of the kingdom, a flash like lightning, a radical new order to be established, and a storming of the Bastille. But through his parables, Jesus Jesus teaches that his kingdom will not be swift. And in fact, it doesn't even seem impressive at first sight. Jesus compares his kingdom to what Matthew calls the smallest of all the seeds, the mustard seed. Now, the mustard seed is technically not the smallest of all other seeds. It took me about two seconds on Google to figure that out. But Jesus and the other gospel writers are not trying to give us a lesson in horticultural studies. They're trying to show the contrast between Christ's kingdom beginning and the kingdom consummated. The kingdom of God will start out small just like a tiny seed. But in time, that seed will grow into its fullness to become a tree. That tiny seed will become a place of stability for wanderers to find a home. The teeny seed will become a a shaded place for the weary to find rest. The teeny seed will become a fruitful place for the hungry to find nourishment. And so is the kingdom of God, a place for wanderers to find a home for the weary to find rest and the hungry to find nourishment. The kingdom of God started with a small baby being born in a manger, which we just celebrated a few weeks ago. But that baby grew up to become a king over all things, and his kingdom will have no end. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar sees all the kingdoms of the world represented in one great statue. The head represents one 
uh, a particular kingdom and it's made of one precious metal and the torso is another metal, the arms and the legs and the feet. All these different metals coming together to represent all the kingdoms of the world, Persia and Greece and Rome. But what happens? Well, there is a rock that is not cut by any other human hand, comes and smashes this statue to bits, representing all the kingdoms of the earth being destroyed. But that rock continues to grow. It grows until it takes over the entire world and is the only remaining kingdom. Just like yeast that spreads throughout an entire container of flour, so the kingdom of God will spread until it reaches the end of the earth. And if Elon Musk succeeds in populating Mars and other planets before Christ's return, I suspect that God's kingdom will be interplanetary and even intergalactic. And this has been happening for the last 2,000 years. The kingdom of God has traveled to the ends of the earth, to continents even unknown to the apostles, which we are a part of. And now as we are in one of those unknown parts of the world, Together we come and we rejoice and we celebrate and we praise God, just like this mysterious woman. Now, as we recount this woman who was bent over for 18 years, who after 18 years of bondage, after 18 years of staring at her own feet, she finally got to lift her face. And what did she see for the first time? Well, she saw the sun of righteousness, not a simple sunset, but the one who created the sunset. Jesus Christ, face to face. But now, if you're like me, something has been bothering you as we've explored this passage. You've been wondering things like, who is this woman? What is her name? And where is she from? Luke is usually good about giving us such details, and Luke is the only one that gives us this particular story. So why didn't he give us this woman's name or tell us anything else about her other than her ailment? Well, there have been many possibilities suggested. Some say that Luke just didn't know the name of the woman. Others say that the woman wanted to remain anonymous. She didn't want to receive any glory. Uh, Others say that perhaps she had just died by the time Luke was constructing this story. And sometimes Luke puts in specific details so you can go and talk to these people and and, uh, get their firsthand experience. But if she's already passed away, uh, he doesn't want to send anybody on a, a wasteful journey. They would just waste their time. Well, I suppose that all of these are possibilities, uh, but these are just literal explanations. I think there is a deeper meaning behind this mysterious woman who goes unnamed. When I think of this mysterious unnamed woman, I cannot help but see connections to other women from Scripture. In this unnamed woman, I see Sarah, who in her barrenness was mocked by her servant Hagar, but in her glory received a child. In this unnamed mysterious woman, I see Leah and Hannah, who were mocked by their competing wives for their disability, but who were blessed by God when they were given children who would help bring in the Savior of the world. When I see this unnamed mysterious woman, I even see Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ, who endured all sorts of insults because of her weird situation or her weird son, but who in her glory received an honor where she is remembered throughout all of time. In this unnamed mysterious woman, I see that young slave girl who became Saint Blandina, 
who stood tall in the face of persecution and even stood above men. But I don't only see females in this unnamed mysterious women. I see St. Paul, who bore a thorn in his side as he went on missionary journeys, taking the gospel to the ends of the world. But he trusted in God to give him a crown that would never pass away. And in this unnamed mysterious woman, I see St. John, who was exiled to the Isle of Patmos as he awaited his death. But there he saw the Lord in all of his glory. And it's in this unnamed mysterious woman that we see great figures like Martin Luther King Jr., who gave his life to help those who were at a disadvantage. And in this unnamed mysterious woman, I even see myself, a person in misery who only found hope when Christ called me, a person who was without joy until true joy reached down and touched me. And I invite you to see yourselves in this unnamed and mysterious woman, to become like this woman. We are all disabled spiritually, and we all need to be healed by Christ's words and by his loving touch. I invite you to see those that are in this room as this woman. See them with the same compassion that Christ saw this unnamed woman. The same Lord who is making this woman well, the same Lord who is making you well, is also making other Christians well. And I invite you to see the cardboard grannies of Hong Kong, those who are dying in the gutters of Calcutta, those who are the weak, the poor, and the marginalized of our community, to see all of those people as this woman, as those to whom Christ has extended his call to salvation and healing power. And I invite you to see the most beautiful woman of all in the face of this mysterious unnamed woman, the bride of Christ, the church of God, who though the church is bent over and deformed now, will one day lift her head and see Christ face to face. May we all long for that day to come quickly. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sin, that you did not leave us in our misery or in our deformity. We thank you that you sent your son to come down and to call us. The word of life who calls all things into existence is spoken into our hearts, a new life. And we thank you for this story. We thank you for this woman's healing. We thank you for our healing. We thank you for the healing of your entire creation. We pray, Lord, that that day would come quickly and that you would bless us as we take that uh, message out to the world this week. We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.